Amen. Well, guys, grab hold of a Bible and make your way to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, that's where we are as we're doing a section on Sunday morning, verse by verse, working through just the armor of God, the spiritual warfare section that's found there, and we want you to be there with us. So again, hope you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles around you and page number on the screen so you can get there rapidly. You can use an electronic device if that works better for you. That's true for you guys in the overflow, but also online as well. We long that this would be a day that you would connect with us and that we would connect to the Word of God. And so we want you to see what God is speaking to you. So hopefully you have a Bible one way or another and that that would be open for you. So with that as an aim, let's take a moment right now and ask God in prayer. Let's go to Him and just ask that He would speak to you and to me through His Word. Would you join me? Father, right now we approach this moment and I thank you. I thank you that you have given us your Word. You've given us a word that you tell us is everything necessary for life and godliness. You've given us your word that causes us to be adequate, to be fully equipped for everything that you would put in front of us. Help us to believe that and then to receive that. Help us to understand the things that you're going to show us, but Lord, also help us to apply them so that in the midst of this morning, we are both hearing but your word working inside of us and transforming us. I know that's the process with which you want to work in us. I just pray that we would be open. Give us ears to hear what you would speak to us, each one of us this morning. We ask for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, fun fact for us as, I, as we begin, maybe you already know, but the modern bulletproof vest, the Kevlar vest, was actually invented by a pizza delivery man named Richard Davis who was wounded after being shot as he was delivering a pizza. He heard about this crazy thing called Kevlar being developed in a rubber factory nearby, was so excited to kind of introduce just a new bulletproof vest because previous to that, kind of in the war, uh, even Vietnam era, the, the, the really armor they wore so big and heavy, and so he found this rubber thing, and yet it took a little while for people to believe it. So he started a company called Second Chances, went around the country trying to convince police departments to try on this new kind of Kevlar, this bulletproof vest, and people struggled with it. So he literally, to prove to him it worked, shot himself. True, true story. He did it over and over again. You can actually YouTube it if you are so interested. But I just want to just draw you to that fun fact as we begin, because here's the thing. He believed it. He believed it was that sturdy and was willing in that sense to put himself into that. I draw you to that because this morning I want to talk to you about something so much stronger. I want to talk to you about the breastplate of righteousness. And hear me as clear as I can say it. It is better. It is stronger. It is more powerful than any bulletproof vest. Hey, for you Lord of the Rings fans, like this is better than a mithril coat that Frodo would wear. I mean, like a cave troll can't penetrate. I mean, this is strong. And I want you to, in one sense, hear that in a way that causes you to recognize what this is. The breastplate of righteousness. That's where we're going. And we're in a section, one more time, that is calling you and I to put on the whole armor of God. Everything that God would have for us. Now, We think about that and understand this, it really begins with an invitation to find our strength in God, 
Just a little bit of a recap for where we are, and really we've titled our series, Be Strong in the Lord. That's found there in verse 10. Why don't you notice it with me? It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Yeah, pause again. That's where God's drawing us. He's drawing us to a place where we would find our strength, our power, our enablement from him and in him. Now, that's needed in so many spaces, but very specifically, we're talking about a battle that is a spiritual war, a real, personal, spiritual war for each and every one of us. Keep reading. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and if that's something you want to dive back into, you can get that study online or ask us for a CD or a DVD. We'd love to give that to you. But we talked about then just this reminder that there really is a very real spiritual war. It's not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the devil and his forces, demonic forces that are arrayed into our world. And it's not just outside of that, not just for other people, it's you. Says that you could stand against the devil because you are in a personal wrestle, a personal combat with him, whether you recognize it or not. Always there. Now, if that's all that we knew, it might sound overwhelming. It might sound incredibly intimidating, like, okay, that's, <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by just the thought that I have this spiritual enemy. But this section is coming to you and I, and it's giving us an encouragement, an encouragement that in light of this and in light of God's strength, we can stand against that. Pick it up there in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Yeah, that's what we're going to cover this morning, but here again, there is this repeated declaration. Four times in these few verses right there, he says, stand. It's an encouragement that you can stand. And I just want to tell you that that is so much on my heart. Now, I think about just how God has even led us to this series and what I'm trying to communicate in the midst of this. I hope there's understanding. I hope there's help. But if it works rightly, I think it should give you a strength, a confidence that maybe you didn't have before, a hopefulness in this battle that is true in our lives because of what God is in us. That is what I want you to understand. And I long, oh God, help me to say it in a way that gets that across even this morning. Well, before we dive into the section and the specific piece of the armor that we want to cover this morning, I just want to back up again and just say, okay, in the midst of this context, this really big spiritual war, there are seven pieces, seven pieces of the whole armor of God that are described in this section. Seven things that are really God, that are kind of this metaphor that he's using of the armor of God, but it's really God, it's his strength in our lives, but seven specific parts of that that we need for this spiritual battle. Now, that's important, and we need to understand each one of them. 
But it's also important to understand the action that is required in the midst of each one of them. You might just notice the word that begins each one, that it's going to tell us that we are having girded with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness. Then later it's going to say that there are things that we take up and then something we need always. What's worth your noting is there really are three sections, three different processes that you're being asked to partake in in the midst of this spiritual battle and understanding that process, understanding the activity that connects to each one of these is entirely helpful. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness and it's worth just noting it finds itself in this section, in this section that is a having section. In other words, these are things that you can and should always have. These are not something that you're, you know, just random or every now and then. These are things that you should have all the time in God. These are things that you, you need, not, these are not things that you need to do, but things that you should already have, and God's calling you to recognize them. That's going to be important, I think, and again, it gives us an understanding of these things, that these are things that we have and are needing to see. Well, that's where we're going to go, and this morning we want to look at this, and we want to talk about very specifically the breastplate of righteousness. So why don't you notice it again with me there in verse 14. He says, stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, we covered that last week, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, that's what we need to talk about this morning, and let me just be honest, I'll just own it right now. Yes, we're only actually covering half a verse this morning. And so you might be like, man, I can't believe this. We're only like half a verse. Well, we're going to go a lot of other spaces, and I hope it's going to be understandable in the midst of it, but there is a key that's found here for each one of us to understand. Righteousness. Righteousness. This breastplate of righteousness, what is it? Well, let me kind of give you an outline of where we're going this morning. We want to spend some time defining it. We're going to talk about what is this righteousness that you and I are called to have. Then we want to talk about why. Like, why do you need this? What makes it so vital, specifically in the spiritual war that we are actively engaged in? And then we just want to talk about how we do it. Okay, if, if, if that's what, if we understand what it is and why we, we need it, how do we do that? How do we make this something that we recognize clearly into our lives? And so that's where we're going to go. We want to kind of approach those three things this morning, seeking to understand, seeking to see what's there, seeking to walk in all that that is. So what is this righteousness? Well, I probably ought to begin with just a little bit of kind of theological background. It's a little bit just big thoughts to think through with me for this morning, but just track for it with me for a moment. Righteousness, part of the thing of understanding righteousness is it really flows in different aspects in our lives. When the Bible talks about what righteousness is that God is working in our lives, well, it might be an oversimplification, but it's certainly true to understand that there is a righteousness that is ours in God that frees us from sin, that makes us right with God. Then there's a righteousness that is from God that helps us do right, helps us to be freed from the power of sin. And then there's a righteousness from God that will free us entirely from the presence of sin. Let me give you the theological terms that kind of lock that way around it. The penalty of sin, that's what the Bible would call as justification. That there's this place where God gives us this justification that frees us from the penalty of sin. Then there is the process of sanctification, that process where we are dealing with sin and overcoming sin and fighting sin in our life. 
And then finally, there is that place of glorification, when in God's presence, in heaven, it's all gone. And so let me even just give it to you one other way. When we think about this idea of justification, that's what happens when you become a Christian, when you're born again. Every child of God who is born again, we are justified by Jesus, and that righteousness is ours. Sanctification becomes that place where we're living out the Christian life, where the Christian life being lived out on a day-to-day basis is a part of that righteousness. Glorification is that place where we're going to be in heaven, where it tells us in James where righteousness dwells, where there's no more sin, where there's no more sorrow, where there's no more suffering, and that's an incredible reality. So righteousness, it does come across in different aspects. There are different kind of ways that that's working into our lives. So as we try to understand that is, one of the questions we have to ask is, okay, which aspect of righteousness is in focus here in Ephesians chapter 6? I think there is a focus. But before we see that focus, I probably ought to be very, very clear. You actually can't have one of these without having the other. They actually are a package deal. Righteousness is all-inclusive so that if you have been justified by God, you are being sanctified and you will be glorified. This isn't one of those kind of a la carte things where you can pick one and not the other. You have all of them. If you are being sanctified, it's because you've been justified and you will be glorified. Or we could say it in a negative way. If you are not being sanctified, then you have not been justified, and you're not going to be glorified. You can't have one without the other. Righteousness is a full package that God is working in our life, and it's a glorious thing. And so it could be understood that in one sense, righteousness encompasses all of that. That's true. And that's just simply true. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what he's doing in you. That said, although there is a package deal, even though righteousness flows into each aspect, each aspect of righteousness has a different way that we relate to it, a different thing that the way that we look on that and, and find it helpful into our lives this morning. And so again, the question becomes, which aspect of this righteousness that is ours in Christ is in focus here in Ephesians 6? Well, Let me just begin by telling you, it really is not that process of glorification. There's really not a single Bible student that any that I read that would look and say, hey, that's what's in focus here in Ephesians 6, so we'll kind of move that out of the way. It's not that there's not hope there, but it's not really this that is picturing how we face and deal with Satan. So that leaves these other two aspects, justification and sanctification. Now, let me be very honest with you. Good Bible students disagree here. In fact, the divide between Bible students is almost equal, that there are good Bible students, almost equal number on either side of this issue. So here's the thing. I just want you to know you really can't go wrong. I mean, whichever way you want to go, you're going to find help there. I'm going to tell you honestly where I am, and I'll just tell you now so you're not even wondering. I really think it's justification. I really think it's that righteousness that becomes ours, that moment of salvation. I think that's what's in focus here. But if you end up on the other side of this, if you end this morning thinking, Jim, I listened to you, I disagree. I just want to give you full, like, kudos, like, hey, do that then. I mean, you're in good company. Like, if you see it differently, find help there. You go there. There's a lot of Bible students that go there, and I want to make sure that you don't feel that, you know, we have to disagree on this. We can just lovingly say, hey, that's a good way to see it. That said, I do want to invite you 
to, to at least think through with me why it might be justification. You know, what, what would really draw us there? And at the end of the day, if you still are in the place of sanctification, that's fine. I still think you can learn from this morning. We're going to spend time talking about justification, and whether you think Ephesians 6 is talking about that or not, justification is certainly a part of our lives. And so again, I don't think we're going to leave anybody outside of God speaking to them there this morning, but I just want to give this to you, not in a way that's argumentative, not in a way that is like, hey, I think I'm right and I'm smart. It's not definitely that. You know, definitely feel my ignorance, but I think it's more hopeful. I, I think there's incredible help if you would understand it. So I'm going to push that away and say, I don't think we're talking about sanctification right now. I think we're talking about justification. Let me give you a few very quick reasons, and then we'll try to understand a little bit more what this is. Why is this important that maybe we would understand this breastplate of righteousness, this spiritual bulletproof vest, is our, our justification. Well, one of them is because if sanctification is in focus, that's not very strong. I mean, there, that's, a, that's a, a sense that it doesn't feel like armor. It's not that solid. I think about what Isaiah says. He says, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. Now, that's certainly true of, of people that don't know Jesus, but I want to just simply say it in a very simple, just clear way, even in Christ. Even in Christ, we struggle. I mean, there's not anyone here that isn't struggling. There's not anybody here that isn't in a battle with sin, and sometimes you're winning and sometimes you're losing. Simply put, if sanctification is in focus, it just doesn't feel like very strong armor to me. It's almost a little bit more like a holy t-shirt. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, well, I hope, you know, maybe it'll block a mosquito, probably won't. But, you know, in one sense, it's just, it's not, if my righteousness, my sanctification is that which I'm depending on in this battle with Satan, I just want to tell you, it doesn't feel strong. And, and, and I think because of that, it's not that. On top of that, when he's talking to us about this righteousness, it's a past tense thing. It is something you are to already have on past tense. When the Bible talks about sanctification, it's present tense and future. It is something you are meant to do now. It is something that you are supposed to be putting on, taking off the old man, putting on the new man. It's a present tense. But this aspect is past tense. On top of that, it's meant to be where you would say it's God. It's His strength because that's what He told us, right? Be strong in the Lord that you would see his strength, and it wouldn't be focused on you, it would be entirely focused on him. And again, I think all those are helpful, but maybe the most clear one is understanding this. Hey, when we think about what this spiritual battle is that you and I face with Satan, the point is that we are in battle with Satan, and what he's trying to do in your life is to get you to sin. I mean, I hope that makes sense, but understand this. When we think about this battle with Satan and what he's doing in our lives, there is a sense that his aim is to cause you to make a bad choice. If you don't know Jesus, he's trying to keep you away from Jesus. If you do know Jesus, I don't think he can get a hold of your soul. He can just marginalize you. He can just try to make you waste your life. His goal is to cause you to do the wrong thing. So the entire point of the spiritual warfare is so that we would resist Satan's temptation to sin. That's the battle of sanctification. That's the battle where we are fighting sin. That's where we're going. So it would be odd to me to have the breastplate of righteousness be the sanctification that we're, it, it just, it would be a, a circle that wouldn't really work in the midst of that. And all that simply to say, I think it misses the point. So all that simply to say, 
I think we're talking about this incredible reality that is this place of being made right with God by justification. Can I give it to you in a verse, although there are dozens and dozens that you could take through, but one of my favorite verses that speak about it is there in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, for he made him, that is God the Father made God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That God made, took sin and placed it on Christ and he became that for us so that now we become the righteousness of God. That righteousness becomes us. That that becomes our very who we are in our standing with God. In fact, I like it in this way. When in the Old Testament, when God was talking about the coming of Jesus, he would say it this way in Jeremiah 23, in his days, in the days of Jesus, Judah will be saved and his name will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Tzitzkanu, for you guys who kind of get that, he's our righteousness. He says he's going to be that one. So that in that day we'll say he is that. But interesting, it goes on there in Jeremiah in chapter 33, and it talks about Israel, talks about Judah, and he says, and she's going to be called, and speaking of the nation or of those who are God's people, who are they? The Lord our righteousness. That who he is now becomes who we are. That because of he's righteous, now that becomes, we become the righteousness of God in Christ. We become this incredible thing that is this reality of what we are. Now, that's a good beginning for us, but there's more we need to understand. And honestly, please catch this. This is a deep subject. It's deeper than we're covering here this morning, but I want to give you a very quick overview. So let's do this. Notice with me one more time there in Ephesians 6, verse 14, where he simply gives it to us this way. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, and where we're covering this morning, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So you've read it there. Now we're going to leave. We're going to leave Ephesians. We're not going to come back to it this morning. So now leave Ephesians and go with me to the book of Romans. Head over there to Romans. If you're using a church Bible, page 1732, Romans chapter 1. Again, we're not going to be back in Ephesians, so you don't have to keep a mark there. But I just want you to journey with me there as we want to quickly do an overview through the early parts of the book of Romans. And understand this. This is one of the themes of the book of Romans. Romans is about understanding righteousness, how we're made right in God, and so it's a great thing for us to understand and certainly where we need to go. So Romans chapter 1, begin with me down there in verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, that is, in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, that's kind of an overview. He says, I am so excited about the gospel, Paul says. I am so excited about the gospel because this is the way that, the only way that people can be made right with God. But this is the righteousness of God. This is how we obtain being right with God, the righteousness of God, and it comes by faith. So with that joyful proclamation, he begins to help us understand who needs it. For the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3, he goes through and in a very methodical way helps us gaze upon all of mankind in a way that would understand, so who's a sinner that needs a Savior? 
And again, he just does a really good job. He begins in chapter one and shows us, hey, the reprobate people that we look and they go, okay, their lives are messed up, they need a savior. Then he'll go in chapter two and say, okay, if you're religious, then you know you need a savior. And then if that doesn't do enough, he comes all the way around and says, if you can just understand right from wrong in, in chapter three, then you know you need a savior. So let's chase to the end of that argument. Go to chapter three as he ends that whole space. Chapter three, verse nine, if you have to turn a page or two probably to get there, he gives it to us this way. What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. His argument, his proof that the book of Romans is saying is here is here's what we recognize. So is anybody right with God on their own? Nobody. There's nobody. There's not anybody on planet earth. There's not anybody who's religious or moral or, you know, again, just, if I mean, everybody's a sinner in need of a savior. There's none righteous, no, not one. In fact, chase down to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. It's just a great way to say it. So like nobody has any argument. It's like, okay, here's what it does. It convinces us we desperately all need a savior. But that's where the hope comes because he continues to unpack it for us. And there in verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, that's that justification, freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Like, wow. Wow. I mean, wow. I mean, if you could see this, this is like when he's like, yes. I mean, he's like, here's this thing. He says, there's, there's not anybody that's going to be made right on their own, but here's what we have. God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus so that now, you know, all of us who are there, we can be made right, as it says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. And that's for everybody who would believe, on everybody who would believe. Like, that's the only way to be made right, but you can be made right with God. But the only way to happen is, is through Christ. Now, again, he continues to argue that, that that's the way it's, it is. In fact, he wants us to understand it's the way it always has been. So there in chapter 4, you can fast forward to verse 3. He says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. He takes us all the way back into the Old Testament to Abraham, known as the father of faith, and says, so how did Abraham, you know, have favor with God? Did he earn it? And his answer is no. Abraham believed, and even he was accounted righteousness for that. That would ultimately be the righteousness even he would gain from Christ. But there's the point of it here is that's the only way it happens. The only way to be made right with God is by faith, and that's the only way it has happened or will ever happen is that faith is accounted for righteousness. So we have that verse again. Let me just put it back on the screen because I like it so much. 2 Corinthians 5, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. Jesus came, lived that life, took your sin, my sin on him, so that through what he did, those who would believe in Jesus were made right. We're made right with God. We enter into the righteousness of God by faith and believing in Jesus. And here's what makes this so important. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. I mean, the way that we're made right with God, it's not about you and what you've done or what you're doing. It's all about what Jesus did. I found myself thinking about it this week, and I was thinking through an older uh, worship song. It probably dates kind of where I am, but some of you might remember it. It was a Casting Crown song that simply was talking to, you know, who I am, and as it kind of just, just pursued this reality, it said it this way. It says, not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. This is a little poetic kind of just pull there. It's not me. It's not, it, it's not because of who I am. It's because of what Jesus did for me. And it's not what I've done. It's because of who Jesus is. That's my only hope. The hope of my life is found firmly and finally only in Christ, that Christ is the means of salvation, that it's only by believing in him that anybody can ha- enter into this righteousness of God by faith. Wow. Well, that's really, really good. In fact, keep going. Go down to chapter 5 as Paul continues the argument of just helping us understand this righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified. And again, that's that idea, this justification that we're talking about. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Wow. Okay, so there's much more there. Again, Romans is a deep book, and understanding this whole idea of righteousness is powerful, and if you want to go into it, you know, further, but I just want you to feel the weight of it. I just want you to feel that he's telling us, here's the righteousness of God. Everybody needs it because everybody's a sinner. And the only way to be made right with God is through faith in Jesus. And God sent his son to bring us into that. God sent his son to bring us into that. And that is where we stand. Which I kind of think about where we're talking about in Ephesians 6. Stand therefore, having this breastplate of righteousness. We stand because of recognizing what this is. Now, again, there's a lot more we could say about it, but that's an, uh, enough for us at least to have a pretty good grasp, at least, of, of what we're talking about. Now let's talk about why. Righteousness, this being made right with God through Jesus, this justification, is this, why do you need this? What makes this so vital specifically in the spiritual war that you're engaged in? What is it about the righteousness of God that you need And and why do you need it so much as we face this battle? Well, again, as we think to process it through, maybe I could just begin this way and say, hey, part of the reason you need it is we have an incredible, ugly propensity to self-righteousness. We have an incredible, ugly propensity. Every one of us has this place where at times we pursue self-righteousness instead of the righteousness that's found in Christ. Let's divide it this way. This is true for those who don't know Jesus. And some of you in this room, maybe online, that's you right now. And I just need you to understand that if if this is how you are approaching God, it doesn't work. Self-righteousness saves nobody. In fact, you're in the book of Romans, so fast forward to chapter 10. You're there in in, in chapter 5, so five chapters ahead. 
as you're turning, kind of a quick overview if you ever wanted to study the book of Romans. So the first five chapters really unpack justification. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 help us understand sanctification. Like how does that now work into our lives? And then he begins to take us in chapters 9, 10, and 11 into some theological just wranglings that understand how that works and God's sovereign plan over everything. Really powerful, but we dive into the middle of that as he thinks through the Jewish people. Very specifically in that day, those who were very, very religious but rejecting Jesus. So you might just notice it there in chapter 10, verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness... And seeking to establish a, their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Wow. This is really, really well said, and again, probably deeper than we have time to go into, but just think about it. So here they are, they, they don't know. They're ignorant. They don't understand that God's righteousness only can happen in Jesus. So instead of submitting to the righteousness that, that's in God, they seek to establish their own righteousness. They seek to come up with their own way of being made right with God. But here's the problem. It doesn't work. But here's the reality. So many have this understanding right now. And again, it might be you this morning. And I'm not trying to make fun of you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I do want to be honest with you if that's where you are. And I just want to tell you it's where so many people are in our world. In fact, if you want to kind of understand this, ask them. Ask them. I mean, ask them one of those questions. I mean, you can use different words. It's not like you have to use the same words, but just kind of ask them. So when you die and you're going to stand before God, let's say he asks you, why? Why should I let you into heaven? What will be your reply to that question? Now, I don't know if you've ever asked that question of anybody. I don't know if you've ever, it's a good question to ask. It's a fundamental question. It's, it's one that people actually think through sometimes. If you ask that question of people, interesting enough, most people in the United States and our world right now will answer that question something like this. Well, I'm not really sure I believe in heaven, but if there is a God, if there is a heaven, I, I just think that he'll probably let me in. I mean, I'm just not really a bad person. Never murdered anybody. You know, I don't rob banks, you know. I, I try to be nice to people. I, you know, I, I give to charities, you know. I, I try to be kind. I mean, I kind of just have this sense that, you know, if there is a just God, that he's going to look on it and see that I'm not really that bad of a person and maybe my good works will outweigh my bad. That is self-righteousness. That is coming up with your own standard by how you think God is going to accept you, rejecting his standard, but you're coming up with your own kind of standard thinking, I think this will let me in. I think this will be enough. Now, it doesn't work. Now, it doesn't work on so many levels, but let's even go back to one of the verses we talked about a moment ago. So it tells us in Isaiah 64, it says, we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. Sin so messes up our lives that even the good things that we do, they're tainted. So here's the thing. Every good thing that anybody does in this world, it's tainted by their sin, their pride, their selfishness, their jealousies, their envies, their comparisons. So there's not anything that is actually inherently of itself good that anybody's doing. It taints everything they do. 
Now, could you just imagine them with me for a moment? So imagine this person, they're standing before God, and they're almost like, okay, so let's kind of compare my good works and my bad works. And so they look at their, their bad things, and like, well, you know, I did a few things, but it really wasn't that bad. Look at all my good works. And they look over here to look at them, and then they recognize everything they thought accounted as good just moved over to the negative column. Because everything they've ever done is tainted by their sin. So if you're looking for anything that you would ever say, I did this right, and this is why I should go to heaven, there's absolutely nothing there. There's nothing that qualifies. I mean, I just want you to stand all by itself. It's kind of one of those places like, you're in so much trouble. I mean, and yet that's exactly what's going to happen. The Bible tells us in, in Revelation that the world is going to be judged by God. He's going to open up the book, show them who they are, and they're going to get it. They're going to understand and, and that's going to be that damning moment where they, you know, are cast into hell because of that. What a scary reality. Now, again, I just want to tell you, if that's you here this morning, and you have a self-righteous standard, thinking that you're going to get to heaven because you're a nice person, and you try to do good things, you are not. Nobody gets to God that way, ever, ever. It doesn't work. And, and please understand, that righteousness will never work for you. So there's an incredible danger because there's this propensity that people have towards self-righteousness. Now, that's true for those who don't know Jesus. But it's also true for those of us who do. The scary thing is that for so many Christians, we struggle with a thing that moves us to becoming one of the terms that we'll use, and this is really what we're talking about, is that Christians will become legalistic. I think we could call those self-righteous Christians as well. That they begin to move towards a place where they, now that they're Christians, think that they're earning God's favor by what they're doing. That their deeds now establish with them their right relationship with God. Now, let me be kind, but also helpful. I don't think that there's anybody in this room that you haven't done this at some place. I don't think anybody. I mean, maybe you are. Maybe you're like, I've never gotten that wrong. Well, then good. I mean, like you're the only one on planet earth, okay? Because the rest of us have. That somehow at times we begin to move to this place that even though we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. We didn't earn it. We couldn't earn it. We didn't do anything for it. It's all Jesus. We then graduate from that grace and now think, it's because of how I live that God likes me. So here's how it works. If you have a really good week, now you've probably had one somewhere in your life. You know what I mean by, I mean a really, really good week. I mean, it started out and you began the week so well, you got up on time, you had time for a quiet time, you prayed and your prayers were good, you, you walked through the house and you didn't kick the cat and you were nice to your spouse and you went to work and it was good and then that week you went to church and they were singing songs you liked and it was so good and you understood the pastor and it was fun. I mean, you're like, wow, God loves me and I look at how good I'm doing. God, really, I have a good standing with him because look, at how good I've been all week long. I'm a good boy, you know, and God likes me. But then you turn around and have a bad week, the kind of thing where you don't get up on time, and either you have a very rushed, quiet time, or you have none at all. You do kick the cat, and you argue with anybody and everybody you can, and then you go to church, and they're singing the songs you hate, and you don't understand anything the pastor is saying, and you're just like, God doesn't like me. I, I mean, I've, I've not been a good boy, I'm not in a good space, and I don't have a good standing with him because I'm, I'm not doing everything I should. Now, please don't get me wrong. Sanctification is meant to be a part of our lives, but it's not the basis of our lives. In fact, true sanctification isn't earning God's favor, it's enjoying it. 
It's flowing out of our justification, and it's free, and it's life-giving. But here's the thing. We have this propensity to throw ourselves back under a law where we have a rule where we think, okay, if I do this, God likes me, and if I don't, he doesn't. If I do these things, and we create our own law of self-righteousness, and think, hey, that's how it works for me, but when you don't measure up to the law that you create, you feel bad, and that's self-righteousness. Now, there's a lot to say about this in Scripture. It's the entire book of Galatians. So that's really what God deals with in the book of Galatians. So if you're wanting to dive into this more deeply, you can go there. Let me just show you a small section out of the book of Galatians that talks about this. So Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Really powerful saying, says, Christ died for me, and, and, and I have been crucified with Jesus. That's how I got saved, but that's how I'm living my life. I'm living my life by faith. The same faith that saved me is now the faith that maintains me, so that now I'm living my life by faith in the Son of God. I'm basing my life off of that same grace that, that God gave me. Now, he says all this. He says, I don't set aside the grace of God. For, righteous, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He says, I don't begin with grace and then kind of graduate in the Christian life to law because if law can make me right with God, then there was no reason for Jesus to die. There was no reason for him to die. If that can make me right with him. And then he just continues and he just, in the very next verse that changes chapters but it's still in the same argument, he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whom's eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. He says, how can you be so foolish? You know that Jesus died for you. You know that he died for your sins. I mean, you have seen 